The Book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. In this time between Christmas and Lent, I'm taking our scripture passages from the Common Lectionary and so today, uh, an odd passage from an odd book of the Bible about an odd prophet. This is Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on a sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The book of Jonah takes up just three pages in my Bible. 48 verses tell the whole story. It's located in the middle of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. The book of Jonah has a very different style from the other prophets, and so I think it's worth paying attention to. Scholar Robert Alter wrote about Jonah, 
the book tells a story that is altogether unlike those of earlier biblical literature. So while many prophets in the Hebrew Bible are reluctant to go when God sends them or even recalcitrant, only Jonah flees in the opposite direction of the call. And only Jonah is called to deliver a prophecy to the general population of a very hostile nation. Preacher Barbara Brown Taylor said, the book of Jonah has the best last line in the entire Bible. These are God's words. Appropriately enough, God gets the last word in this book. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The end. That's it. Mic drop. (laughs) Terrific, right? Should I not be concerned about 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? But what if Jonah had gotten the last word? Gosh, that would make me really happy. If Jonah had gotten the last word, if Jonah said, No, God, in no way should you be concerned. I don't care how many people or animals there are in Nineveh. Not only do they not know their right hand from their left, they also don't know right from wrong, those bunch of fools. And they don't know the Lord God Almighty from a hole in the ground. Wipe them out. Wipe them out. You said you would. They deserve it. Have you ever looked at a group of people and thought, what in the world? Have they lost their ever-loving minds? What planet are they from? Nineveh. The answer is Nineveh. That's where they're from, those people. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were brutes. With a well-trained and equipped army, they terrified the countries around them. They terrified their neighbors. They were notorious for the way that they treated other countries. The records of their battles are gory. They are bloody. In the year 722 BCE, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and they carried away thousands of Israelites and resettled them to other parts of the empire. The setting for the book of Jonah is probably 30 years before the Assyrian attack, although it was written down well after, probably a few hundred years after the attack. So the Assyrians are a threat. They are a threat to anyone who tells the story of Jonah, and they are a threat to anyone who hears the story of Jonah. And keep in mind that the Ninevites, they're not just a threatening enemy. They don't think like the Israelites think. They're polytheists. They worship many gods. There's a God of the heavens and a God of the earth. There's a God of the waters, there's a God of the sun and the moon, and a God of storms. And some towns in the empire even had their own pagan, their own, uh, their own patron God. In the time of Jesus, one of the offenses of the Samaritans, and it was quite possibly the foundational offense, was that the Samaritans had melded the Jewish faith 
with the Assyrian beliefs. That Yahweh, the one true God, would send a prophet to Nineveh, I mean, it's simply unbelievable. But it's not the only unbelievable thing in this book of the Bible. It's quite easy to compile a list of the unbelievable things in this Bible, of the there's no way that happened things in Jonah. I mean, a fish, please. A fish is an obedient servant of God in this story. A fish swallows the prophet, and Jonah stays in the belly of this fish for three days before being vomited onto dry ground. No way, right? The city of Nineveh is a three-day walk across, which means it would be about 90 miles across larger than the modern-day city of Los Angeles. No way. Jonah preaches Jonah preaches an eight-word sermon. It's five words in Hebrew. Go ahead and say it. There's no way a sermon could be eight words. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the result is equally unbelievable. The whole city of Nineveh trusts God, and they turn from their evil ways, and then... And then the cattle and the sheep, they dress in sackcloth, and they join the people in prayer and fasting. No way. Much of the story is unbelievable. It's extremely exaggerated. If I could pull your middle school grammar teacher up here, she would tell you, this is hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken literally. Hyperbole is used to exaggerate. It's used to emphasize, to highlight, to point out what's really important. And there are important truths in this story that the exaggerated details highlight. I think I've located three. There might be more. The first, I believe, is that God is creator and redeemer of everything and everyone. And there's no place that we can get to to escape this truth. The belly of a fish in the deepest part of the ocean or the capital of the most blasphemous and brutal empire. We can't get away from God's love. This map that I want you to see shows Jonah's intended journey with the long dotted line. That's Jonah's intended journey fleeing to Tarshish, fleeing from the call, and then the shorter but twisted journey that goes up into the Assyrian Empire to Nineveh. This map is what was known as the known world at the time that this story was told, with Tarshish and Nineveh representing the opposite ends of the world. The thing about this story is that there's nowhere you can go to escape from God. We can't escape from God's compassionate glance or from God's great care. Richard Rohr's devotion this week highlighted the work of German theologian Dorothy Soule, who wrote, God sees what is otherwise rendered as invisible or irrelevant. And if God sees what we render as irrelevant or invisible, then soul taught that the faithful should be about taking sides with those that the world sees 
as invisible or irrelevant, taking sides with all who suffer. So to use God's senses is not to turn inward. I mean, that can go horribly wrong for us. To use God's senses then is to see what God sees, to hear what God hears, laugh when God laughs, and cry where God cries. You may have heard it said that beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. The truth of the scriptures, and especially this book of Jonah, is that beauty lies in the eye of the great beholder who holds us all, who holds everything. If God can find beauty and worthiness in Assyria, God can find beauty and worthiness anywhere. One thing that I learned from Jonah is that I'm not a very good judge of worthiness or beauty. I don't do it very well. And so it's only mine to help put an end to suffering where suffering exists and to do my best not to extend suffering, which like Jonah, I'm prone to do by running away (laughs) or wallowing in my own self-pity. Those two things don't end pain, they just expand pain, running away or wallowing in my own self-pity, which leads me to the second great truth found in this Old Testament book. The second great truth found in Jonah for me is about the role of the prophet. You know, Jonah is unhappy when Nineveh is spared. He's resentful. Maybe it's because he thought they deserved to be punished. Maybe it's because he thought that he'd been made to look a fool. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote that the truth of the matter is that free will means that the future can never be unfailingly predicted. We can't do it. People change. God forgives. A prophet then doesn't foretell. A prophet warns. So the real test of prophecy, Sachs said, was not bad news, but it's good. Israel's prophets warn, no doubt, but at the core, Israel's prophets are, without exception, agents of hope. They're hopeful. The best, most actualized prophets among us are the hopeful. In a few short verses toward the end of the third chapter of Jonah, which I read from this morning, the Hebrew verb to turn, it gets translated to to turn, and it's the Hebrew word shuv. It shows up multiple times in just three short verses. Every person in Nineveh turns back from evil ways. Every person turns from outrage, and even God turns back. Even God turns back from wrath, what Robert Alter calls miserable intentions. God turns back from God's miserable intentions. We are most prophetic when we long for this turning back to happen everywhere, in others, in ourselves, and in God, even. The big question of this book, I believe, is will Jonah turn back? He finally does turn and go the right direction of God's call, but will he also turn back from resentment? This we don't know, and turning back from resentment may be the most difficult pivot. 
Always before us is this challenge, this challenge to turn away from the things that destroy life, including resentment, and to turn toward those things that make life flourish. Hope. You know, finally, I've come to realize this week that I'll never take over for Henry Louis Gates Jr. Maybe you all know him. He hosts that show, Finding Your Roots. You know, the show where Dr. Gates places before people a beautiful scrapbook of their family tree. No matter who the guest is, he puts before them a beautiful scrapbook. I'll never replace them. Besides the fact that I'm not a professor at Harvard like he is, the reason that I won't get the job is because I have bad news for every single one of you about your family tree. The scrapbook that I would put in front of you, you wouldn't want to put on a bookshelf. It would be terrible. Here's the bad news. It ruins your family tree. You're a Ninevite. You have Ninevite blood and lineage in your family tree. We all do, every single one of us, a threat to some, offensive to others, not knowing our right hand from our left, and all in need of God's great mercy that we can't escape from. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in kindness. It is sometimes true of me, like Jonah, that I am good and angry, full of myself and my own self-interests. But your mercy, Lord, your mercy flows from your compassion. You see all of creation as your work. Every person I meet, every being I come across is a signed copy of yours. And so, Lord, this day, we settle into your truth. We celebrate the goodness that is and the goodness that will come. And we do our best to turn toward compassion. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior. Jesus the Christ. Amen.